I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians uh, this morning. We began last Sunday uh, a short series of messages as has been our normal pattern in the fall. We walk through our vision as a church to make Jesus, making Jesus known and our vision that what would that look like as God works in us, that we would be uh, people who are, are growing deeper in intimacy with Christ, closer in relationships with one another as a church, and bolder on mission for the lost. Uh, those truths are grounded in the gospel. Uh, these aren't things that we produce on our own. They're, they're grounded in the gospel, and we, we are empowered by the Spirit. So gospel and Spirit are vital to that whole enterprise. And so last week we began, we looked at our mission, uh, the mission uh, to make Jesus known. We looked at Matthew 28, the Great Commission, a text very familiar to many of us, where Jesus sends his disciples, he sends us to go and make disciples, going, baptizing, initiating into a life of faith, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And, And we saw there that Jesus has all authority, all authority is his, and that he promises to be with us always. That's where we were last week, looking at the mission, the reason why God has left us here after Jesus ascended to the Father's side. We are here for this mission, this purpose, to make Jesus known, to proclaim the gospel. This morning, uh, we're going to look at the first part of our vision, that the idea of uh, that we want to be, what will that look like? It'll look like uh, a group of people who are growing deeper in intimacy with Christ. That is, we'll, we'll be growing to know Jesus more. We'll grow in our love for Jesus, grow to follow Him more faithfully. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, many of you over the years have been in our home. Those of you who haven't, uh, let me just describe something that you'll see sometime when you come. Uh, in our home, uh, we have a, a large, I guess call it a ruler, uh, we wanted to mark the height of our children, our boys, as they grew. And so rather than doing it on the wall, I thought, I'm going to make uh, a board, paint it white, make all the ruler marks all the way up to, I think we're seven feet something, seven, six or something. I'm not anticipating anyone would get there. But I thought, I'll screw it on the wall. That way, if ever we move, we can take it with us and we don't uh, lose this when we paint or when we, we move from that home. Now, we're still there and that ruler is there. And my family, my wife and all three of my boys, I, I think this is a little weird, um, but they all aspire to be taller, just in a general way. They, they, they want to be taller. And, and so over the years, as we measure them, uh, they, they'll line, the, line up against the, the, the ruler, and they'll actually strain, try to be taller. And, and sometimes, I think we've had to go to the chiropractor sometimes, because this straining to be taller has actually hurt them. I, I, I don't understand that. I, I've never, you know... My, maybe it's because I gave up so many years ago. My younger brothers are both 6'4". I was the runt, so I, I can't even remember aspiring to be taller. Um, but they all want to be, and, and my boys all are. My older boys are 6'3 and 6'2, and Brennan tells me that he's 5'10 and a little bit, so now he's taller than me too. Uh, they all aspire, and they stretch, and they try so hard to be taller. Uh, this morning... We're focusing on the first part of our vision, that we want to be people who are growing in Christ, growing deeper in intimacy with Jesus. And when we focus on growing in Christ, there is this danger, there is this uh, possibility that we will begin to kind of do what they do, to be tall. We we stretch, we strain, we, we exert all kinds of effort to try and do what we think we're supposed to do, to try and grow, to be better. 
to grow in Christ. We can feel this pressure, this weight, this expectation, and, and, and we can stretch. We've got to get with a program and grow. G- growing in Christ is indeed what we are called to do. Scripture calls us to do that. But as we will see, our growth in Christ is produced in us through Christ, through the work of God. The, the transformation of our lives, our growth in Christ, comes not from us straining but from us surrendering ourselves to God's redemptive work. Our growth in Christ displays God's glorious redemptive work in us. And so as we unpack this text in Colossians, we will come to see that. Now before I read uh, the text, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Let me say a few things uh, by way of context. Uh, the city of Colossae was located in the Lycus River Valley. It was one of three cities there. The other two cities are actually mentioned in this letter, the city of Laodicea and the city of Hierapolis. These three cities were all neighboring c- cities, I guess triplet cities, in the Lycus River Valley. There's a church in uh, Colossae. Obviously, Paul's writing them. We know there's a church also in Laodicea. Not sure whether there was a church in Hierapolis, but we do know that there was a gospel ministry happening there as well. Uh, the letter to the Colossians is one of two letters sent to this city. Uh, one is this letter to the Colossians to the church. The other letter is the letter of Philemon written to a man named Philemon who is a member of this same church. Paul wrote both of these letters likely from a prison cell in Rome. We know it was from, he was in prison, but probably from a prison cell in Rome. Now, Paul did not found this church One of his co-workers, a man named Epaphras, did, a colleague. Uh, He's mentioned in our letter. And and, uh, Paul writes this letter, and it's sent to Colossae with a man named Tychicus, who's named in the letter. Now, though Paul didn't found this church, he was commissioned by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he takes responsibility. He cares deeply for this young church, and he writes. And as we see, if you read through the whole letter, there is much that is going well in this church in Colossae, but there is some false teaching, some wrong thinking that is infiltrating that is there, and he writes this letter to warn them, to correct them, to turn them away from that back to the truth of the gospel as they had heard it. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read Colossians 1, verses 3 to 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way." bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. 
For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now there is a lot packed into these few verses. It's a very dense uh, passage, and we can't look at every detail. But what I do want to do with you in the time we have together is ask four uh, questions. Consider these four questions. First, what is asserted about the Colossians. Second, what is expected of the Colossians? That is, what, is, what are they called to? Third, what is prayed for for the Colossians? And fourth, what is declared to the Colossians? Of what are they reminded, okay? So, that what is asserted, what is expected, what is prayed for, and what is declared? What is asserted uh, about the Colossians? What's, what's affirmed? What's, what's said here? Paul begins by asserting two things. First, he speaks of their faith in Christ, and secondly, of their love for the church. That is, their love for all God's people is how the text puts it. The Colossians have been saved. They have been born again. They have been redeemed, rescued. In verse 2, just before our text, Paul speaks of them. He addresses them as God's holy people, God's holy ones, the saints. They have heard the gospel. They have believed the gospel. They have trusted Jesus for their forgiveness. They have passed from death to life, and they have become disciples of Christ. Paul asserts also that for them, faith has not merely been uh, assent to a set of mental things, but it has had a practical impact on their life. That is, not only do they believe in Christ, not only is their faith in Christ, but they love God's people. They love the community of the redeemed. Their faith in Jesus has born that fruit. As he continues, Paul also asserts the veracity of what they've heard. He speaks of the truth of the gospel, the true message of the gospel that they have heard. They have heard it proclaimed, and it is something that they can trust. They can have confidence. It is, it is true. Uh, what they've heard about Jesus is not just an opinion. What they've heard about Jesus is not just one option among many. According to Paul, they've heard and believed the truth, the true message of the gospel, the true message of good news. Paul actually says more. He, he highlights the fact that what has happened among them is also happening elsewhere, that this isn't unique just to them. Listen to verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So he's saying, you have believed the gospel, you put your faith in Jesus, the message you heard was true, and it is changing you. You have faith in God, love for God's people, and what's happening among you is happening elsewhere too. This is bigger than just you. This isn't just in your city of Colossae, it's happening in the whole world, Paul says. And then, uh, once again, he, to assert the veracity, he speaks of this. He, he says that, that the message they've heard and believed, the gospel, that Paul asserts the trustworthiness of the one through whom it came, Epaphras. He says, you learn it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. So Paul is, is affirming, he's asserting their faith in Christ, the impact it's had on their life, that this is bigger than them, that what they've believed is true, that the one they heard it from is faithful and has given them a true message. So he's, he's asserting all of those things. He's affirming those. And then he goes on, he says, for all this, I'm thankful. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray because of these things, because of their faith in Christ, because of their love for God's people, because of their reception of the gospel message that they heard, the gospel which is bearing fruit in them and around them, in the world around them. So those are the things that Paul asserts. Those are things that we know, that Colossians heard the message of the gospel. They heard 
the true message. It was accurate. It was given to them by a faithful servant, Epaphras. They believed it, and it's bearing fruit in their lives. It's bearing fruit in them just as it is elsewhere. It brings us to our second question. What is expected of the Colossians? To what are they called? Again, our text is very dense, and there's, there's a lot packed into these few verses. But he, he, uh, there's a few things that I want to highlight when it comes to what was expected of the Colossians. What, what are they called to? Look with me at verse 10. Paul speaks of them living lives worthy of the Lord. He, he speaks of them pleasing the Lord in every way. This is a picture of growing Christian maturity growing in obedience, growing in holiness, that, that we would live lives, that they would live lives that are uh, pleasing to the Lord, that lives that are worthy of the Lord. There is this expectation, he says, that their lives will be transformed, not only that they would believe something, but that belief in the gospel would change them, that, that it would change their lives, that they would please God, not in just you know, a few ways, but in every way. This expectation that we'd live lives that please God. And we don't only encounter that here. Listen, in 1 Thessalonians, we read this same concept echoed. We instructed you how to live in order to please God in 2 Corinthians 5.9. So we make it our goal to please Him, to please God. As those who put our faith in Jesus, we are called to, there is this expectation that our lives will be transformed, that we will live in such a way that God is pleased. We will live lives that are fitting to who we are, uh, live lives worthy of the Lord. That's what these believers are called to. That's what all believers are called to. Now, Paul has already asserted, he has already said that the Colossians, the believers to whom he's writing, are God's holy ones, the saints. He, he has already asserted the fact that they are saved, they are redeemed, they are, uh, they are, are born again, they are the people of God. He has, he has said those things already, so we need to, to remember that. And now he is asserting that the, the implication of who they are, that is, you are God's people, you are redeemed, you are saved, you are rescued, the implication is that now you will live lives pleasing to God, lives worthy of God, that they will be growing as Christians, that their lives will reflect the reality of their faith in Jesus. Uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way, Paul is asking that the Colossians may understand themselves more and more to be God's new, true humanity, and that they may increasingly live in a manner appropriate to that vocation, that they would be growing in Christ. Remember last Sunday when we looked at uh, the mission of making Jesus known, Jesus sent his disciples and he said, go and make not just believers, not just people who sign off on a set of doctrinal positions, a set of propositional truth claims, go and make disciples, go and make apprentices, go and make others who would follow me, uh, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Jesus calls us to grow in obedience. He calls us to teach others to grow in obedience. The Christian life, a life of discipleship, is a life of, of growing in Christ. It's a process of learning, learning to be who we already are. So the Colossians are the saints. They are holy ones. And so now the Christian life is, is the process of learning to live out the reality of, of what is already true about us. There's this, this expectation of, of growing 
of becoming more so, of living lives worthy of the Lord, living lives that please the Lord, living out our lives in ways that are congruent with our new identity as God's holy people. And there's more that Paul says here. He speaks of them having great endurance. He speaks of them that they should have patience. I read that and I just go, yikes. Some of you know the song from a children's record. That's dating myself. Have patience. Have patience. There was at least one occasion this week where I actually sang that out loud to myself. There's at least two occasions off the top of my head where I needed to sing that song. You're supposed to have patience. I'm like, oh, that's hard. That's not natural. I'm not like that's. But that's what Paul says. Great endurance, patience, joyful thanksgiving. We're to live lives worthy of the Lord, to please Him in every way. Now, I, I can't speak for you, but sometimes I, I, I see this, and, and I, I think of my, my wife and my son straining, because you've got to do this. This is hard. Suppose it feels like pressure. It feels like a challenge. It feels like I've got I to gotta pull myself up by my boots. I've got to get serious about this. I got, I got accomplished. I, I need to be working at this just a little taller. I got to dig in and do more and try harder. I got to grow. And yet the text holds up before us this call. It, it says that we are to live lives that are worthy of Christ. That, that we are to seek to please Him in every way. So, so what are we to do with the weight of expectation? I mean, are, are we looking to God's Word? Is this going to be a proverbial loving kick in the pants where we're like, okay, people, let's get with the program. We're supposed to be growing in Christ. So try harder. Strain. Stretch a little harder. It can feel that way. Let's turn to the third question I, I want us to consider, and that is, what is prayed for for the Colossians? That question itself highlights something that is critical for us to notice. Namely, the fact that the Colossians are prayed for. Paul prays for them. And we'll look at his prayer in a moment, but, but for a moment, just think about the fact that, that Paul here prays. He doesn't just say, live lives pleasing the Lord, live lives that are uh, worthy of the Lord. He prays for them, and that is significant. Prayer, by its very nature, hear this, Prayer by its very nature is acknowledged helplessness. We pray because we are in need. We pray because we are inadequate to the task before us. We pray acknowledging that we are helpless. By its very nature, that's what prayer is. Here's what Jeff Bridges writes in his book, Discipline, The Discipline of Grace. He says this, Prayer is the tangible expression of our dependence on Christ. We may think we're dependent on Christ, but if our prayer life is meager or perfunctory, we thereby deny it. We're in effect, in effect saying we can handle our spiritual life through self-discipline and innate goodness. He's saying if we don't pray, we're, 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 we're at least betraying any sense that we're actually dependent on God. If, if we realize that we're helpless, that we're utterly dependent on Christ working in us, then, then we're going to call out to Christ to work in us. C.S. Lewis says this, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. He says, I pray because I'm in need. Prayer, at its very core, is acknowledging our helplessness. 
And so it's terribly significant that Paul prays here. He's not praying for himself. He's praying for the Colossians, which is an acknowledgement that they need help, that they can't do what they're called to do. So Paul is asking God to work in them. Paul is asking God to do for the Colossians what the Colossians can't do for themselves. Look with me at his prayer, verse 9. He says, for this reason, that is, because of what he's just said in the previous part of our text, because of their faith in Jesus, because of their love for God's people, because they have heard the gospel, they believe the gospel, because the gospel is bearing fruit in them just as it is in the surrounding world. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying. Paul is regularly praying for these believers, regularly bringing them before the Lord. And what is he praying for? We read on, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Paul is asking God to act. He's asking God the Father to fill them with knowledge of His will. That is, God, give them the, the, the understanding of of the life they're living. Give them understanding of who you are and who they are and what this life is that you're called to. Uh, knowledge of His will. F.F. F. Bruce asserts that, that true knowledge starts with a proper attitude toward God. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Remember, fear of the Lord is, is a right understanding of who God is and who we are and, and how we live in right relationship. Paul is praying, God, give them the knowledge that, that is required. Give them the knowledge of your will. And he speaks of this understanding and wisdom that the Spirit gives. He's asking God to move. He's asking for Father and Spirit to move in them. Why? Because it is this knowledge, this wisdom, this understanding that is necessary for them if they're going to live lives worthy of the Lord. That if they're going to live lives pleasing to the Lord in every way, God needs to move in them. Not only to give them knowledge, but also to give them power. This is what we need to see. that The life of discipleship, a life of growing in Christ, is not a life that you and I can achieve by our own striving and straining, by our own strength, by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. The, the Christian life, the life of following Jesus, is supernaturally empowered life. Our, our vision says that we want to be growing deeper in intimacy with Christ, but that is anchored in, remember, grounded in the gospel that is in Christ's finished work on the cross and empowered by the Spirit. We need the Spirit of God to move in us. We need the power of God to operate in us. So look what he says in verse 11. Paul speaks to, of the Colossians being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. He prays for the power of God to work in them. The power of the Spirit, this is about his power. In Ephesians, this is an amazing, amazing truth. In Ephesians, we read this, uh, we, of His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, the power that is for us, the power of Almighty God that is for us, that power is the same as the mighty strength He, God, exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. The power of the living God, the same power that He exerted, the Father exerted to raise Jesus from the dead, is that same power is for us. That's the power that Paul prays God strengthen them so that they can live the way you're calling them to live. The growth Paul calls the Colossians to, the growth God calls all of us to, is growth that comes as God acts, as God opens our minds, gives us the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding that we need, as God pours out His power in us to move in us and to transform us. And so Paul prays, Father, fill them. Father, strengthen them. Father, transform them. 
Paul prays because he knows that unless God works in them, that this is a lost cause. There's no hope, but there is hope. There is hope. Paul has already said that they've received the gospel, they've believed the gospel, that they have been adopted by God. They are the people of God, and now we praise God, continue your work. In Philippians, we read this, that he who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why he prays. He prays that God would accomplish his purposes in them because he knows that we are utterly dependent on God for his ongoing work in us that our transformation is, is the work of God. That as we grow in Christ, it, our lives are displaying not our goodness, but the goodness and the power of God and His redemptive work. It leads us to the fourth question I wanted to ask, and that is what is declared to the Colossians? Of what are they reminded? Of, or what, of what are we reminded? Our text begins with Paul telling the Colossians of his prayers for them, his thanks to God for their faith and their love, their faith in Christ, their love for the people of God. He's thankful that they've heard the gospel, that they've believed the good news. Now, as the passage comes to a close, Paul makes several declarations. He, he reminds them of several marvelous truths. He's grateful for their faith. He, he's prayed for them that God would give them knowledge that God would give them, that they'd be strengthened by God's power. And now he declares again so brilliantly, so clearly, the good news that they've believed. The good news that, that they've already heard and believed. He reminds them of what God has done. He, he reminds them of what God has accomplished. Look with me at verse 12. Paul has said to the Colossians that he wants them to give joyful thanks to the Father. But then look, he describes the Father this way. The, the Father who has qualified you. The Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. The Father has qualified you. I want you to hear that. Brothers and sisters, we don't qualify ourselves. We don't somehow produce what is needed so that, okay, we pass from, from one side and the other. No, the Father qualifies us. The Father is the one who qualifies us to receive an inheritance. He makes us heirs. He adopts us as His daughters, as His sons. We don't achieve this. We don't earn this. This is the work of God. It is a gift of grace. We, we get to share in the inheritance of the kingdom of light because He has made us His heirs, because He has adopted us. There's still more we read on. For He, the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. The Father has done this. God the Father has rescued us. God the Father has brought us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. The kingdom of God, we are citizens of His kingdom through His work, through His rescue, through Christ. In Christ, through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus, we are forgiven. Christ went to the cross. Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Christ absorbed the punishment that we deserve so that through faith in Him, we are cleansed, we are washed, we are redeemed, we are rescued. God the Father has done this. God the Father has qualified us. God the Father has redeemed us. God the Father has, has given us this inheritance. In Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This, this is what Paul declares to the Colossians. 
that the Father has qualified them, that He has rescued them from the dominion of darkness, that in Christ they're redeemed and forgiven. If you're with us this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus, I I just want you to hear this. So often people come mistakenly to this conclusion that somehow we have to clean ourselves up to come to God. That we need to get our spiritual act together to come to God. And I just want to say as clearly as I can that that, that is an impossible thing. That, that you will never achieve that. You, you will never make yourself good enough. That we, we are helpless apart from God. But I want you to hear this. That it's the Father who qualifies us. That, that we can come broken. We can come guilty. We can come dirty and, and, and ashamed. And we can come to Him and say, I, I need what, what I can only find from you. And, and the Father will qualify you. That you will be rescued by Him through Christ, through His death on the cross. And that you can pass from death to life through what, what God does. We surrender to Him. We surrender to, to the Gospel. We, we put our hope in, in Jesus. And so you can do that today. You can come to him as you are. And you say, I need help. I, I, I want what only you can provide for me. I want to know you. I want to be in right relationship with you. I, would you come and qualify me? Would you rescue me? Put your faith in Jesus, the one who died for your sins, that through him you would be forgiven and redeemed and rescued. Paul ends with this declaration of the gospel. Christine and I have been married for nearly 25 years. Next spring, we'll celebrate 25 years. Hard to imagine. And I just want to tell you what helps me grow as a husband. It's those times when Christine has had enough and she sits me down and reads the riot act. She says, smarten up. You got to cut this out. Get with the program and start doing these things. You know, it's, it's just this really loving kick in the pants that I need, and, and I just, I really grow when that happens. I, I want you to know, if you're listening on a recording, my tongue is firmly in my cheek. That's not what helps me grow as a husband. What helps me grow to be a more faithful, God-honoring husband is when I see the love my wife has for me when I see the grace she shows me, when I see her commitment to give herself unreservedly to me, when I see that, I'm just, I'm I'm moved to to love her more faithfully, to to grow. I want to be a better husband. And, and, And that's what we need to understand here. We're called to grow in Christ. God's desire is that we would live lives pleasing to Him, that we would live lives worthy of Him. That's the call. But it will not come because we have this sense of pressure and we better get with the program. It will not come if I'm up here with a big stick and give you a proverbial kick in the pants every once in a while and say, come on, people, let's grow in Christ. Let's get our act together. Let's pursue Him. We're slacking. That, that, that won't work. That's not God's plan. Here's what will help us grow in Christ. Beholding Christ on the cross. Seeing that the Father is the one that qualifies us. Recognizing His great love, His abundant grace. 
as we see him, as we see his love and his grace, as we see his redemptive work, God will move in our hearts. He will give us knowledge of his will. He will fill us with his spirit. He will bring about transformation for his glory, not ours. I want you to know this. I want you to hear this. Growth in Christ will not happen when we do more and try harder. It will happen when we see God and His glory and His beauty and His grace and His love. And when we do, we will see Him working in us. We will see Him transforming us bit by bit. We will grow to live lives worthy of Him. We will grow in, to live lives that are pleasing to Him. But we need to always understand this, that the, the growth that He produces in us, He produces in us. We need to recognize that, that we need to come to Him helplessly, that we need to pray, God, move in me. Open my eyes to understand. Give me knowledge of Your will. Empower me. Strengthen me by Your power, Holy Spirit, that I might be more faithful to You, that I might grow in obedience to You, that I might live a life pleasing to You for Your glory. And as we do, as God brings about growth in us, as He transforms us, our lives display not our goodness, but His glory. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank You. We thank You for Your great love and Your great grace. We thank You for Your redemptive work. We thank You, Father, that You are the one that qualifies us. That You are the one who rescues us from the dominion of darkness. We pray, Holy Spirit, come. We pray in this season ahead that You would come, that You would move in us, that You would have Your way in us, that You would open our eyes to see the glory of Your beauty, Your love, Your grace. And Lord, that we would experience growth. Not, not because we're straining and trying hard, but because we are looking to You. We pray this in Your name, Jesus, for Your glory. Amen.